0: All right, so we're going to first look at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 26, and we'll kick off, and it says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Okay, so, so Jesus... Uh and his disciples, he has been in Jerusalem, which is also in Judea. Um, and, and they've been there for Passover, and now they head out into the into the countryside there around Jerusalem. And he goes out there, it says, for two purposes. Uh one, he wanted to spend time with his disciples. He wanted to get time with them, really invest uh in them outside of the craziness of the city. We also see that he started preaching out there. People were uh, becoming Jesus followers. They were getting baptized. And we later read that Jesus wasn't the one baptizing them. His disciples were. But we see this happening and then also at the same time still the guy John the Baptist who we've talked about multiple times as we've been going through the book of John his ministry never stopped it's continued to keep rolling and people are still coming to him in crowds and they're being baptized by him as well. But what we see also is it tell us what? John has he's not been arrested yet. Now the reason it tells us That John the Baptist hasn't been arrested yet is it's it's clarifying the time frame in which this is happening. Okay, so when we say the synoptic gospels, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, Um, and and they pick up uh, Jesus's public ministry in Galilee after John's been arrested. So why this is unique, why this is special, why it says this happened before he's arrested is John, the writer, is letting us know that he's bringing us into a time frame that none of the other gospels speak of. So it's really special. And so we have this window that only this gospel speaks to, and and what we see here is we're dropped, essentially, into this dispute. And it's kind of a surprising dispute. You guys, I say this all the time. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it does not hide the problems that people had, either with them and God or even with each other. Because, I, I, you know, I think, I think one of the things that, that we tend to do is we tend to look at it through like rose-colored lens and, and we're just like, oh, everything worked out for them and it just went right and Jesus' ministry just takes off. John the Baptist, just everything just flowed so well. But, but all of a sudden, uh, because the Bible doesn't shield us from the realities that they went through, we're confronted with this dispute and we go, Are you kidding? And what do we see happen well there's a it says a Jewish man we don't know who it is. this Jewish man brought up the subject of purification with some disciples of John the Baptist. so John the Baptist had some disciples remember the, uh, because some of them actually left him and followed Jesus, but he still has this following uh, th- these disciples that allude to him as their rabbi and as, as, as these disciples are having this conversation over purification with this Jewish man, something in this conversation triggered this pre-existing frustration over what was happening with Jesus' ministry. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and you're not even talking about this thing and, and all of a sudden they, they just like unload. And you're like, hey, we weren't even talking about that, but it's obvious you got some problems here. Like, you're worked up. Well, whatever it was in this conversation about purification, we don't know what it was, but it triggered this dispute. It triggered these feelings that John's followers were having towards Jesus' ministry. See, John had been ministering at this point in close proximity to Jesus. And as he did that, his gatherings had slowly started to decline. John's disciples, uh, they're, they're troubled by this declining popularity. Okay? They saw Jesus as a competitor who was gaining popularity at their master's expense. So they go to John and they're like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And and I mean, listen to how they even speak here when they say, what do you think about this? They came to him and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptized and all are going to him. They don't even say Jesus's name. You can just pick up the resentment they have towards what Jesus is doing. See, here's the other piece that you, you look at and you see in verse 26. They're thinking all of this, and yet they were there when John literally said, there's the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They were there. They were witnesses to that. And even though they were witnesses to that, they are still jaded. See, we've already seen John's purpose for his ministry. We've already seen that that when he pointed to Jesus, some of his followers started following Jesus, and he he was happy with that. But despite hearing all this, they had missed the significance. See, John's role was to testify about Jesus, and so people should naturally follow Jesus as a result of what John said. But in their minds, these followers of his, these disciples of John, they still view him as the superior leader, and Jesus is stealing followers. Guys, this is one of the typical attacks that, that Satan attacks us with, and he's so effective in it. And, 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 and he does this in a multitude of ways, and it's not just ministry, Okay? It happens to us individually. It happens to us in our families. It happens to us uh, as a worker. It happens to me as a husband. It may happen to you as a spouse or, or, or wherever you're at in life. This is one of his primary ways he gets us to struggle. He throws in our face how popular or successful others are at doing what we feel called to do or what we think we should be doing. And what happens as he throws this at us, and and it's never been easier. I mean, with social media now, you you get to see all kinds of people. You'd see people your age, where they're at in life, people with how many kids you have, what they're doing, what you're not doing. Uh, and churches do the same thing. Man, their church is doing that. Man, their pastor's doing that. All these things. And, and, and it just absolutely continues to bombard us at a rate that we're not even ready for. And, and so we're trying to handle this. And all of a sudden, what creeps into our hearts is envy, covetousness. Why them? what they do? Why are they getting this? Why, why are they why have they gotten to this point in their life? Why am I still here and and, and so literally Satan gives us gets us to this point we 're no, we're no longer listening to the message we 're no longer reaching and pointed uh, and, and looking to god we 're now so consumed with all these things around us we're not even hearing him. all we can hear. Every day is, you're not good enough. Look at what they are. Look at what they've become. Why are you still here in this place? And it drives us crazy. So much to the point that we not only hold on to this envy, this covetousness, but all of a sudden, we start tearing those other people down. Because what do you do when you're in that insecure place? You try to bring other people down to your level. That's what criticism is. It's me trying to pull someone down to my level. That's what envy, that's what covetousness does. And so we see this happening. You guys, we got to guard our hearts against this because ultimately what happens is exactly what happened with them. We start to actually criticize people doing God's will. They're criticizing Jesus. They're criticizing Jesus' following. Guys, this is how quickly it happens. Um, Jesus has to be our focus. We see... Um, just like this jealousy and this envy uh, that comes out, we see this same division taking place in the Corinthian church, and Paul speaks to it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apos- uh, Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who's Peter, or the super spiritual, I follow Christ. He says in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name? Of Paul? See, what happened is Christians in court, they started rallying around a person instead of Jesus. Some chose Paul, some chose Apollo, some Peter, and then others Jesus. But Paul asks if you're all following Jesus, how can you be on different sides? Unless there's more than one Jesus, you shouldn't be split up like this. See, Jesus has to take precedence over any earthly leader that we have. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, this is one of the things that I see right now as we think about being in the late stages of January 2021. One of the ways I have seen this uh, work itself out and, and, and come to the point of division is, and, and I've never seen this before, but because we have so much time, uh, because so much is online, because everybody's getting their message out online, Um, I hear more and more about people um, and they start to go after a leader, whether it's a a pastor or a theologian or somebody. And this is within Christian circles. And all of a sudden, all that they're putting out there in their beliefs, in their way of thinking, they found somebody that they gravitate towards because they agree with that person the most. And now like no other time, they get consumed with it. And all of a sudden, and you see this happen. Well, I'm a part of his camp or her camp. Well, that's wrong. You should be a part of their camp. And all of a sudden, we're like, whoever we listen to, we're using that as a weapon against whoever they listen to. But my person's actually right. My person actually reads the Bible. Yours is wrong. And all of a sudden, we just get in this just crazy, envious, covetousness, and and, and accusatory state of mind. And and we've got to be reminded of what the Bible warns us against to where literally John the Baptist, John, who completely pointed everyone to Jesus, his followers fall in love with the charisma, with the person. Because remember, everybody was blown away by how John communicated. People were moved when he spoke. He also was very interesting. He would have a lot of followers on social media. Wear like hair, like camel's hair, he's eating bugs. I mean, and then all of a sudden he speaks and everybody's just like, baptize me. So he has this power and, and, and people are going to it, but because they fall in love with the person, they miss the message. And guys, this works both ways. Sometimes you can fall in love with a person that you're no longer hearing the message that's designed to move you in a direction, but other times you can fall so in love with a person and be attached to a person that you miss when they actually start drifting theologically. And I've seen a lot of people, in fact, I've met a lot of people in the last year go, oh my goodness, I have been following this, I've been promoting, I've been pushing this, and all of a sudden I went, uh, what am I doing? This is not right. Guys, we got to be careful. And the Bible warns us about this. It warns us. In verses 27 through 30, we see John respond. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then we come to one of the most famous, most humble verses in all the Bible. It says, He must increase, but I must decrease. This is John's response. So essentially, he says, listen, you guys, like, thanks for following me, but anything and everything good that's happened to me is a result of God's goodness. See, you guys, with the success that John's had, with the people that are continually coming to him, even as Jesus's ministry is taking off, he says people were still coming to John. Guys, it would be very natural and in our flesh to go, man, I'm pretty gifted, Man, look at me draw a crowd. I'm pretty good at this. But we see John continue throughout his earthly ministry to point it back to Jesus. Guys, he understood the source of every success he had. Guys, we can do nothing well or successful apart from the goodness of God. Whether that's in your ministry, whether that's in your home, whether that's in your business, God brought every person who listened to John preach, every person that got baptized, God was the one that led them in that. When the apostle Paul was dealing with this same kind of jealousy and division in the Corinthian church, he says something similar, as John says, in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything is from God. Why in the world would you act like that's not true? This is the message we try to communicate. We try to preach to you. And just as, as they were preaching that then, you guys, we have to be reminded of that. Not only because of that envy and stuff that comes in, but because you guys, we can so quickly, so quickly go, man, it's pretty awesome what I did man, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I accomplished that. Everything good you've received, whether it's financial, whether it's a physical gifting that you have, or maybe it's just success. You guys, that is a gift from God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, it says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them though it was not I, but he says, but the grace of God that is in me. And then in Ephesians 3, 7, he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Over and over and over again, you see those that were most effective for Jesus and reaching people, they were the people that were continually reminded that it's all because of him. They were the humble ones. They were the ones that, that, that knew, I can't get in the way of what God's doing. And the moment I try to take credit for what God's doing, I've made it about myself. See, if John sits there and, and gets angry and upset by what's happening in Jesus's ministry, that means that he is saying uh, that God, you like, like he has a problem with God directing people away from his, of his ministry when his whole ministry was to point people to Jesus. Like, uh, it, it doesn't make sense. Like that's why he was there in the first place to direct people to Jesus. See, he understood God brought these people and if God takes them elsewhere, that's God's decision. Guys, the results of our ministries are not ours to take ownership of. It's God's. Anything good that happens in this church or has happened in this church, and there's been some amazing things that have happened. That is an act of God's sovereign will. And you see this, guys, like how many times, and it's so sad, how many times have we seen moral failures from church leaders all throughout? I mean, and it's heartbreaking, but I keep going back to it's amazing because this was happening, and yet God was still doing incredible things in their church. How does that happen? What God is trying to communicate to us is I operate outside of any man, any leader. I am absolutely sovereign. And so guys, any ministry that we're even tempted to go look at us, man, we better stay away from that because it is God's ministry and God's gonna move and direct it and and, and he's gonna do that regardless of how we feel and we just have to be submitted and surrendered to his will and take the posture of John the Baptist and fight this any type of envy or covetousness. Man, if the gospel moves in this city, in this county, and it's through, like, I don't know, another church somewhere. We better be rallying. We shouldn't be in here going, oh my goodness. We still don't even have a building. Are we gonna... yeah, they get everything. Come on. Are you kidding? Man. Jesus said to his disciples, what? In Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. He says, I'm not going to build your church. I'm going to build my church. It's his. When we start we start to drift when we lose that perspective when ministry becomes focused on our success, our accomplishments, our victories and our crowds. John reminds them that he's not the Messiah. He says very clearly, remember I told you, I am not the Messiah. His role is to come ahead of the Messiah. He knew his role was to point others to Jesus, um, and 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 to the point where Jesus acknowledges John the Baptist in a way that's amazing in Matthew eleven eleven. He says, "Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist." So, so Jesus takes takes notice of this incredible humble man, John. But we see John here in this moment. He compares. Jesus, to a bridegroom, and himself, it says, to the groom's friend, or as we know, the best man. So that, now now John, like, uses this imagery here. Now, when we think of the groom's friend, or the best man, um, their role in those days, in weddings uh, at that time, it was to prepare the wedding festivities and to make sure the wedding went smoothly. So they oversaw this process to make sure that everything happened, as it was supposed to happen. They ran the ceremony, essentially. And so when when we look at this role, the best man's job was to make sure the bride was there and that the wedding could begin. Once the groom showed up, the best man went. His job was complete. His job was complete. John is saying, "I am the best man." You guys, nobody goes to a wedding to look at the best man. I've never met someone. Well, I'm here because of the best man. Unless it was the best man's date. Nobody goes for the best man. In fact, every time I do a rehearsal, I look at all the groomsmen and I said, "Let's just remember," and and I just want to remind you, they're the purpose. They're the reason everybody's coming. None of you are that reason. So let's behave. And John is saying, I got to be that best man. The grooms arrived to marry his bride. How dare you think in that moment, I would want to step forward and take away what is the grooms. He says, no, no, no. Actually, my joy is made full at this point because, and and guys, if you've ever been to a wedding, that is the moment, right? When the groom uh, and, and the bride, when their eyes connect for the first time. I don't know how many weddings I've done. I still am like, because there's just like, in fact, some of you that are married today, I want you guys to look at each other. Like, don't say right now, we just got in a fight before we got here. Don't, don't do it right now. Well, maybe you should right now. But I just want you to think about it. Think about that, that look that you have. If you've been married for a while now, there's a depth to that look. But, guys, in that moment, nothing else matters. And John is using this powerful imagery to say, listen, I'm just the best man. I I literally have, like, helped make sure this happens, and now my joy is full. How dare you think I'm trying to hijack the groom's bride? And, and so he, he literally uses this incredible analogy to share with them his point, his purpose. And, and I love how, because we see all throughout the Old Testament, Israel was sometimes called the bride of God. Throughout the New Testament, we see the same imagery applied to Jesus and the church. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven two. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to One husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's talking to the church. The church is the bride, and Jesus is the groom. And we see even at the end, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is given this glimpse of the, the end wedding, which will take place at the end of time, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and, and we see in Revelation nineteen seven, it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And, and I love how one commentator put, each Sunday gathering is a preview of that wedding. We come to worship, desperate to look upon the face of the groom to see the one who loves us with an eternal love. Every week we get to come here and we get to anticipate looking into the eyes of Jesus, uh the, the the groom, and we're this bride, and we're amazed uh as we think of Jesus that he's gonna love us in the eternal way that he does. It's and and, and we get to refocus on that and remember that each and every Sunday. See, John saw Jesus' increasing popularity as the fulfillment of his ministry. The measure of success for any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Jesus through the minister. He lived so the fame of Jesus might increase. He encouraged his disciples to follow Jesus. See, we, we, we drift when we stop thinking about Jesus and start worrying about ourselves. And and that's what he's saying When, when he talks about he must increase, I must decrease. At the core of it, you guys, is this. If I'm thinking I need to increase with him increasing, at some point we're gonna meet and there's gonna have to be a decision that's made. Who is this really gonna be about? But if I'm focused on me decreasing and him increasing, what does that mean? That means when things come up in my life to where I'm like, I think this should be like this. I think we need to do this. I think it needs to look like this. And yet and yet I'm feeling that way. I have to go, but God, you're doing this and leading us to do that. And so God, I wanna figure out how can I get you to increase? And in that moment, I'm choosing to decrease myself. And that should be our posture all the time. The problem is, we're trying to do both. And John says, there's no confusion here. I'm focused on decreasing because I want him to increase. Each and every one of us are are confronted with that question of who do we want to increase? We have to answer it. He continues on in, in verses 31 through 36, and he says this. He who comes from above is above all. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So he shuts down this chapter with giving his followers the reasons why Jesus is supreme over everything else. And he starts by making a contrast to himself and Jesus. John says, you know, I'm from the earth. I belong to the earth. I'm an ordinary human. I had a mom and a dad. Jesus is not from the earth. He is from heaven. His origin is eternal. He's always been. He always will be. He is above me. (laughs) He has authority over all of this. Everything we see also, everything Jesus said about God, it was what? It was firsthand knowledge. It wasn't passed down through generations or in books. No, he's speaking to everything he's seen and experienced. That's what Jesus is speaking to. We can trust what Jesus says because everything he says comes from God himself as Jesus throughout his ministry. And as we've seen, he reminds them of that. But then we're, man, we're reminded of just kind of the brutal truth, right? What does he say there? In 32, yet no one receives his testimony. Guys, despite the fact that Jesus' testimony is clear and firsthand, it's mostly rejected. But then we see that there's some who do believe. There's some that believe and they show their confidence in what God says and that it's true and, and they affirm it says by setting their seal to it. Uh, setting their seal that God is honest and trustworthy. And in the ancient world, when it talks about setting uh, their seal to something, uh, what, they're, what they would do is it was often with a signet ring that they had and they would dip it and, uh, in in some wet wax or Warm wax, and then they press it down, and then it would harden, and that would be their seal. And, and it would tell everybody that this is authentic. This is coming from me. I affirm this. And so what they're saying here when they say, and, and we have set our seal on this, they're saying, we affirm, we believe that this is true. We believe what Jesus said. We accept it. See, when a person believes Jesus, they're saying, I testify this message is authentic. But the opposite is also true. Those who reject Jesus' testimony, ultimately they reject God himself. See, and one of the things that, that it's highlighting here as well is, how can anyone be obeying God if they don't listen to the one God sent? Remember these Pharisees. Remember John the Baptist's own followers who would say what? They believe God, they follow God, and yet they're caught up in what? Not wanting anything to do with Jesus to where they don't want to acknowledge his name. He's just a competitor that for whatever reason has this gift of miracles. And so they're saying, I believe in God, I worship God, and yet I'm not going to listen to or obey the one God sent, the one who's God in the flesh. You know, when my parents went away for uh, a date night or whatever, I remember they would come home and they would ask the babysitter how we did. And they would say, did they listen? Did they obey what you said? And then the babysitter would leave and we would either be like, yay, or we would go, oh, no. See, my parents looked at how we responded to the babysitter as how we were actually responding to them themselves. Because the babysitter was a representative of them. Same thing happens in school when there's a substitute teacher. I remember when a substitute teacher came, for me and my friends, it was like, game on. Let's test them. And then I remember our teacher would come back and she would light us up. Because that substitute, she would always say, you're to look at her like you look at me. And you honor respect them like you respect me. okay it, it, It's so interesting how these people could get so disconnected between, I love God, I worship God and yet miss out on Jesus. And when what once again this tells me is how quickly We can allow other things to distract us from the things that are most important that God is trying to speak to us about, that God is trying to testify because uh, we look at what's happening here, and it's so important. It's so powerful, and these people are missing it. And we see in Scripture here, Jesus didn't come to deliver his own message, but to speak the words of God. Unlike these human teachers who, whose words sometimes agree with divine truth and, and sometimes they don't, Jesus always spoke in complete harmony with the Father. He infallibly spoke the words of God because God gave him, it says, the spirit without measure, okay? Colossians 2.9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Okay, in other words, like, like he didn't have the Holy Spirit for a moment to empower him to do something. He had the Holy Spirit, the whole thing, the whole package, immeasurable. All the time, in fullness, it dwelt in him. And so everything he said and did was in alignment with the Father. And, and, and as we, as we look at those last two verses, In 35 and 36, let me reread them. It says, the father loves the son and has given him all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God has given everything into Jesus' hands because of his love for him. So Jesus is the power, the authority over life, death, salvation, and condemnation. And it says salvation only comes to those who believe in him. And an essential element of Of believing Jesus is this you have to accept his word and obey him. You have to obey him. You can't divorce obedience from belief. To believe, you must obey what Jesus has commanded. Um, I did this wedding this summer, and they did did the uh, cord of three strands and intertwining them together to represent the husband, the wife, and God all together going together in unison, right? Guys, when you think about um, belief, obedience, and salvation, they literally intertwine. They just do Because by me submitting to the authority of Jesus, by by saying you're my Lord and Savior, I am literally saying now I am going to live my life out of obedience to you under your authority. That's what you're doing. You're giving him ownership, titleship of your life when you surrender it to him. Okay, and, and, so, and so when we think about how we're called to respond, you're called to respond. Like, like there will be, if there's genuine conversion, there will be fruit out of your life that bears with repentance. There just will. And, and so we see this all throughout scripture. The New Testament teaches that if you don't turn from your sin to obey Jesus, then you haven't put your faith in him. Hebrews 5.9, it it says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him. 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, true belief is always accompanied by obedience to His word. When we place our faith in Jesus as Savior, we're putting ourselves under His authority, and it's just like it's just like when you go to work and you have a boss, and 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 if you if you say I'm going to help uh, this company thrive, and I'm going to operate under your leadership, and 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 we're going to make this happen, you don't then just do your own thing and say but. By the way, I'm not going to listen to what you say, and I'm not going to I'm not going to do what you ask me to do. But I'm all about our company. I'm all about us winning. Okay, when you think about a coach, you're you're putting yourself under the authority of the coach, and 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 you have to agree that 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 if it's it's only going to work out under the authority of the coach if what you respond and follow what the coach asks you to do. There is no player on a team that when the coach says, I want you to do this, listen, coach, I'm all about the team. I'm all about your authority, but I'm just not going to do what you say. You don't stay on that team. They trade you. Guys, why in the world do we separate it when it comes to our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Now, this is not a works-based faith. Let me be very clear on that. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? It's not because of my works he saved us, but he saved us for good works. Okay? And, and when, you, when, you, when you receive him as your Lord and Savior, uh, like, like, it leads you to action in your life. It just wouldn't even make sense to come before him and say, God... I need you. I repent of these sins. You died on the cross for them. You've given me the opportunity to have eternal life. Thank you. I can't wait from this moment on to continue to sin. No. If you're a Jesus follower in this room, that was none of your prayers, right? It was, I needed rescued. But for whatever reason, in our culture, we've gotten to the place where we're like, oh, I know they're saved. They said this prayer. I remember it. Guys, let me tell you, I said that prayer hundreds of times growing up. I remember it very clearly. It was on the flannel graph. Had a picture of heaven, beautiful city, picture of hell, fire, people in it. They said, who wants to go there? Who wants to go there? We all raised our hand. Heaven, unanimous. I'm like, five, pray this prayer. Okay. I don't want to go there, the fire? Right. Okay. I prayed it over and over and over and over and over again. And even as I got older, man, if a, if a pastor could create this emotional moment, man, I'm like, okay, I got to pray that prayer because I need that. But you guys, there wasn't this fruit of change in my life. I had not surrendered authority to Jesus. And so there was no fruit that, 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 that came out of repentance. And I had to make a decision in my life. If this is salvation, if this is me going all in with you, God, it means now you're in control. It means I'm going to live for you and no longer for me. And so when we talk about salvation like like that's what it does you can't separate obedience from it. It changes your life. And it says those who believe they're granted this eternal life. After our bodies perish we'll live forever in heaven. Guys, I want to I want to close with this question. Who is the Lord and Savior of your life? That's different. That's different than what do you believe? I know a lot of people that will say, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus came and did what he said, but they have not made him Lord and Savior of your life. Who is Lord and Savior of your life? And then lastly is this. John is preaching to his followers the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is greater than everything else. Is this a reality for my life? Is he the basis for my decisions? Is he the basis for the convictions that I live with? Or is it something or someone else? And I want to say this. We as a church are absolutely committed to him being on that, in that place. And and one of the things we're going to do, and I'm going to start previewing right now when I tell you this, is we as a church, I'm going to be encouraging and challenging all of you, get ready, to partake in a 40-day fast together. And it's going to be different. And we're literally mapping this out to where I'm going to preach on fasting February 21st. We're going to have a night of prayer and worship and asking God what is in our life that is in competition with him. What is it? It's not just food. It could be something else that God is, is calling you to give up for 40 days. Well, God is saying, like, listen... I want you to hear me again. I want to be there, and you're allowing this or that or this thing, or maybe it is food, to get in the way of that. And as a church, collectively, I'm going to preach on that, and then we're going to have that night of prayer and worship. And then on the 23rd, we're going to go into a 40-day fast that ends the day before Easter. And we're going to celebrate Easter, maybe like this. But we will. We will. And it'll move us, and we're gonna be putting out stuff during that time for you guys to grow because it's never about just taking stuff out of your life. It's what are you gonna fill your life with? And so and so we're we're it's gonna be so exciting for our church because and it just comes back to this. Is he number one? Are we continuing to keep him there? And 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 is that our focus? And if it's not our focus, we become just like John's disciples. We do, we slip into it. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. God's going to blow our minds in 2021. Amen?